Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Say it again. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Uh, we're actually going to start in verse 39. Um, I was doing the liturgy in a hurry this week and typed the wrong thing. So I apologize for that. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39 down through verse 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations shall call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Father, as I preach your word, I ask that you would strengthen me by your spirit, that you would fill my mouth with your words, that I might preach the gospel boldly as I ought to do. And I pray that you would illumine your, our hearts and minds, that we might receive your word, that we might be comforted with the gospel. And so being comforted that we might learn to wait well for the coming again of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So this passage is kind of clearly broken into three parts. There's the kind of setting the scene in the first few verses, and then there's Mary's response that that is known to some as the Magnificat, this song that she sings. And then there's verse 56 that's just kind of uh, just the closing scene, letting us know that, that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then went home. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So if you are wanting me to dive in and pull the theology out of that, you'll just have to wait for another sermon. We're going to focus really up through verse 55. And as we've been working through the story of the promises leading up to the birth of Christ, we've been asking these questions about waiting. On whom was the, were the people of God waiting? How are we to wait? Why is waiting hard? All of these are different things. Why are we right to wait expectantly? And we've been asking these questions that we also, as we wait for the second coming of Christ, and for the consummation of the kingdom of God, and and for our being ushered into glory, that we might wait well. And we're going to continue thinking about this idea of waiting and, and learning, hopefully, Lord willing, how to wait well as we look at Mary and her story. But really what we're going to, we're going to be looking at 
are just two points of looking at how Mary waited. And we're going to see that first she waited trusting God as he actually is. And then we're going to see, secondly, that she waited worshiping God. And this is how we're to wait. And by making this two points, I don't imply that trusting God and worshiping God are kind of fundamentally different actions. They're very much connected. But this is how we're to wait now. Trusting God and worshiping God. So as we look at verse 39, we see the scene being set. And Mary was, for for one reason or another, the Bible doesn't tell us, she went to visit Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why this happened, but, but I think it's reasonable to assume that this young virgin who had received this vision that she was going to bear the Christ child, and in that vision was also told, by the way, your elderly barren relative is about to give birth, that maybe they wanted to kind of connect and swap stories and compare notes and kind of say, well, here's... Here's how it went down for me. How did it go down for you? What are you expecting? Here's what I mean. I mean, it's reasonable that she would like, I need to go talk to this lady because something is happening to me that has never happened to anyone before. So she goes and visits Elizabeth. And then the story gets a a little bit weird if, if we can kind of be honest about things in verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped. In her womb. We don't know what's going on here exactly. We, we don't know. I mean, maybe we don't, we don't know if, if Mary's already pregnant and, and, and John recognizes that he's in the, in the presence of the Messiah. We don't know. But we know that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And we know that he recognized, even in utero, that something great was happening. And it says also that Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then as we begin putting all these different things together and kind of tracing what's happening throughout the story, one, we see that the Holy Spirit comes up again and again and again in all of these promises. Zechariah was told that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Mary was told the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the Most High would overshadow her. Therefore, the child to be born would be called holy. In today's passage, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Next week, when Zechariah is able to speak again, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and start prophesying. At every turn in this story and throughout the rest of Jesus' story, the Holy Spirit is there and at work. And that's important for us to see. Because I think we often, at least if I can be honest, I do, have a tendency to see one person of the Godhead at work at, at one point and, and another at work at another, or, or one person of the Godhead doing one part of the work but not the other part of the work. But that's really just kind of a, a, a weird modalism. It, it, it's kind of breaking the Trinity apart. Saying for a while he did fatherly things, then he did son things, now he's doing spirit things. But when we read the story, what we see over and over and over is beginning to end. The salvation of the world, this plan that God has put in place from before the foundation of the world, was always and will always be a Trinitarian work from beginning to end. Throughout the story about the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, throughout the story, the Spirit and the Father have been at work and have been present 
as well. So I've already said the Spirit is everywhere in this story. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is the one who's being announced as coming in the flesh. And he'll come as the Son of the Most High, as, as the Son of the Father. And this is a vital point for us to understand as we think about waiting and the role trusting God has in our waiting. If you are united to Christ by faith, you never wait without a father. If you're united to Christ by faith, you you never wait separated from the Son. If you're united to Christ by faith, you never wait apart from the Spirit working in you. And we need to keep that in mind. Because when the waiting is hard, it can be helpful to stop and, and ask ourselves, am I waiting right now? Am I waiting as if I don't have a father who loves me? Am I waiting right now as if I'm not intimately united, fundamentally united to the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who bled and died for my sins and rose in victory? As I wait right now, am I waiting as if I don't have the Spirit as my helper and my guide? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, and we have to admit that that at times we fall into those traps, then we're not trusting God as he actually is toward us. The loving, saving, helping, triune God. And this may be why the waiting is so hard at times. It may, or, or it may just be a contributing factor to why the waiting is hard. Because the reality is, trusting God as we wait does not always make the waiting easy. Sometimes, trusting God as he actually is, Father, Son, and Spirit, ministering to us as a triune God, sometimes it just makes the waiting possible. Because sometimes... We're hanging on by a thread. And it's the knowledge that we have a Father, that we're united to the Son, that we're filled with the Spirit. Sometimes that just makes it possible. But it does make it possible. Because we realize, we realize as we dive headlong into trusting God as He is, that we have security and identity and hope of a loving, saving, helping, triune God, we realize that we're not on our own. That it's not up to us to knuckle down and get it right. That it's not up to us to have a death grip on anything in life. But to cling to Jesus, who was sent by the Father, And with him has poured out the Spirit to be our helper and to be our guide. In other words, it's to trust God as he is. That's how we're to wait. And that's what we see Mary doing. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And then verse 45, I love. Because I think, I think in verse 45, one, I don't want to be irreverent here. She is saying something absolutely true. 
Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That's what Mary was doing. We talked about the difference in her response and Zechariah's response. But remember, Elizabeth was saying this while her husband, who didn't believe, was mute. And I can't help but think that he was in the corner with this kind of this again look on his face because it was still months before he would speak because he didn't believe. But Mary, she did. She heard the she heard what was spoken from the Lord and she believed that it would come to pass. And she was blessed because of that. She trusted God at his word. And that's what we're called to in our waiting. And I get it. That is hard. It is hard in, the, in the, just the face of regular life sometimes, not to mention all the things that get added to it. All the, the things that we've talked about that make life waiting. Sometimes just in the face of the normal, everyday stuff of life clinging to the promises of God and believing this will come to pass is hard, isn't it? But here's what we learn from these stories that we've been looking at. We can trust that what God has promised will come to pass. And we have to fight for that with the help of the Spirit. But we can trust that what he has said will come about. We're not waiting in vain. And so then we dive into the second part. Seeing that, that we wait in faith, believing that, that what has been spoken by the Lord will be fulfilled by the Lord, we look at, at how it was that she waited. And she waited trusting God and then, as we see in verses 46 through 55, she waited worshiping God. This was her response. As she came to Elizabeth and Elizabeth said this to her, her response was this song that's recorded here. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. We see here this example of, of parallelism that's so often in, uh, uh, apparent in Hebrew poetry. She, when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, she, she's giving us these two thoughts that work together and, and, and build on each other. She, she, makes, she magnifies him. She, she makes him big. She, she makes a big deal of God in her soul. She glorifies him. She, she recognizes and, and, and preaches to her soul. This is who it's about. His glory. Him being known to all the nations. That's what this is about. Him being magnified. And this is what the story's been about the whole time. Even if we go way back in the Old Testament, we go back, what was it that was said to Pharaoh? That they'll know me, that I am their God. That all the world will know me. We go to the story of David and Goliath, and what was it that David taunted Goliath with? I'll win, and I'll cut your head off, and Israel and all the world will know 
that there is a God in Israel. See, this, this is the goal. That God might be glorified. That He might be magnified. That we might see Him as He actually is. John Piper uses the analogy of, of glorifying God. He, he, he distinguishes between uh, uh, a, a, a microscope, there we go, there, the word disappeared, a microscope and a telescope. And he says the difference is a microscope takes something that's tiny and makes it big enough to see. That's not the kind of magnifying of God that we do. A telescope, on the other hand, takes something that is enormous and, and far away and makes it where we can see what it is. That's what we're to do. Now, unlike a planet, God's not far away. He's present with us by his spirit. But the magnification that, that we're to do is to show us, show each other, show ourselves, show others outside the church the glory and the grandeur of who God actually is, of how he actually is. And this is what Mary does. She magnifies him and she rejoices in him. She finds joy in the way God is toward her. And how is he toward her? He is her Savior. And Mary has learned to enjoy this. And, and when we put these two ideas together, magnifying God, glorifying him, and rejoicing in him, if you've been around here long at all, you know what my next point is. This is just the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what Mary is doing. This is how we are to wait. It's magnifying him, rejoicing in him, because he's bigger than all of this that is before us. He's bigger than all of it. But then Mary continues with her song and, and she grounds her worship in what the Lord has done and how he is. And so he, she teaches us to do the very same thing. Why is she magnifying the Lord? Why does her spirit rejoice in God, her Savior? Because he looked on the humble estate of his servant. The specific word for looked here, that verb is epiblepo in the Greek, and it's only used three times in the entire New Testament. It's used here. It's used in Luke chapter 9 when, when a father calls out to Jesus to look at his son who is being tormented by a demon. He, he wants Jesus to, to take concern for his poor child that's being tormented and thrashed about and thrown into fires. He wants Jesus to look at him attentively, caring. And then the other place it's used is in James chapter 2, verse 3, when James warns against looking with more attention and with more care on the rich in the body, giving them the special places to sit than you do the poor. What Mary is communicating in, in this word is, that, is the idea that God looked on her with special care and attention. And he did so in her low estate, in her humiliation, in her humble estate. He looked on her with care and attention. Not in her glory, but in her low estate. He looked on her and cared. 
And we don't know the exact nature of Mary's humble estate. And, and the exact nature of it isn't really the point. The point is that whatever it was, the Lord saw her, and not in a passive way, but with attentiveness, with care, in her humble place that he found her. Calvin writes, the meaning is, I was unknown and despised, but that, uh, but, but that did not prevent God from deigning to cast his eye upon me. And this was not the loud cry of a pretended humility, but the plain and honest statement of that conviction which was engraven on her mind. For she was of no account in the eyes of the world, and her estimation of herself was nothing more. Perhaps this is the case. Perhaps it's, it's simply... Perhaps it's simply that, that Mary is saying, I'm nothing special, but God did this through me anyway. But there might be more to it, actually. Because as we read through the song, and, and especially toward the end of the song, she begins contrasting the way God is toward the rich and the prideful and the way he is toward the poor and the humble. It's likely, because we know Jesus didn't grow up in a rich family, it's likely that Mary's social situation was difficult. And, and the reality is, it's always been a temptation of man to attach the possession of the things of this world to godliness and God's favor. And, and ironically, we kind of do this out of both sides of our mouth. On the one hand, we have a tendency to think, if I'm godly, God will bless me with worldly goods. And we treat God like this kind of genie who responds to our supposedly being good. But on the other hand, we just as quickly turn around and when we get a little bit of the world, when we get a little bit of sense, we think God must be pretty impressed with my performance and must be mighty happy to have me on his team. But Mary sees right through all of this. She sees that, that God has not, not shown her this favor because she's a big deal in the world, but he has looked attentively on her in her low estate. And, and, he, and her being called blessed is not a result of gaining the world, but because the holy God has seen her and visited her and ministered to her. And what we see in this is that his attentive look is effective. There, there appears to be this parallelism at work in, in uh, verses 48 and 49. Where, where she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And that's in parallel with, with uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 49 and 50. With the beginning of verse 50. Nope, I'm getting it all wrong. I should have stuck with my notes. Verses 48 and 49, she says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And this is in parallel with, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. The attentive look of our loving father, the attentive look of our God on our low estate is not just a look of sympathy that moves on and says, man, that looks hard. I'm so sorry. It's, it's the look that, that acts. It's a look that sees us in our lowness, that sees us in our brokenness, and then is mighty and acts according to how he is. According to what he is capable of. He looked on the humble estate of Mary and he was mighty and did great things for her. That's what God does for us. That's what God did for Mary. He looked at her lowness and acted according to his capability. 
And, and isn't this the, 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 the idea that's behind the Christian ethic that John teaches us in 1 John 3? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide, abide in him? The idea there is, is if you look on someone in a low estate and you have the capability to care for them and don't, then how can we argue that God's love is in us? Because God's love sees and acts according to his capability and teaches us to do the same. And this is what he did for Mary. He saw her in this humble place like he had seen Hannah before and he acted in mercy for her. But then in verse 50, down through 55, the story or the, 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 the poem changes, the song changes. And if you look, at, beginning at verse 50, Mary's no longer the object of God's acting. From, from verse 50 down, it's those who fear him, it's Israel, it's, it's the people of God. And so what we begin to see is, as we look at this is it teaches us that God's attentive look is not just for Mary, but for all who fear him. And just like Mary, his look is not just a sympathetic look, but a look of one who can and does act on behalf of those on whom he looks with such attentiveness. Mary turns from herself and how God has been toward her to all those who fear God. And what we see is that God is the same toward us as he was toward Mary. The Lord does not divert his eyes from the humiliation of his people. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is how God is towards us. If he sees us in our pride, yes, he does humble us. In his love, he disciplines us in that way. But when he sees us in this low place, when he sees us in our humble estate, he acts for us. And he sees us and ministers to us and he pours out mercy on us. He provides for our needs in this world. He protects us against the pride. We, we see this scene that reminds us of Asaph in, in Psalm 73 where he looks out and he sees the pride of all the people and, and he longs for all of that. But then he turns and sees his God and remembers what life is actually about. God shows mercy. He shows strength with his arm that, that on the one hand, casts the pride and the proud down, and on the other hand, exalts those of humble estate. Sometimes we're, we're scared of being in a low place in life. Sometimes we're, we're scared, even, even though we know God is merciful, that, that we know he's full of grace, that we know he cares for us, that we know he watches after us. We're scared to humble ourselves before him. But over and over and over throughout the Bible, as, as we see here, he doesn't break a bruised reed. 
He doesn't dash the humble on rocks. But if we humble ourselves before our God, he lifts us up. He exalts us, the Bible says. If we call out to him for our needs, he feeds us. And, and why does he do this? It tells us in verse 54, in remembrance of his mercy. Because of who and how he is. That's why he does this. Because this was his plan all along. To show mercy to people in need. To show love for those in need. To send his son to die for those who were dead in the trespasses and sins of their life. That was his plan all along. Because it's who he is towards us. The Lord does not divert his eyes from the humiliation of his people. While we may fear the world's rejection of us in our lowest state, we do not have to fear the Lord's rejection of us in such a state. But like the father in Luke 9 who called out for help from Jesus, he called out to God to be attentive. We can do that as well. We can call out to God for him to be attentive to us with the full confidence that he will be even as he was to Mary. We can call out to him from the lowest of places, from the darkest of places, from the most hopeless of places, from the most scared place we find ourselves. We can call out to him and say, God, do you see me? Look on me. Look on me with care. And he will. Because that's what he does. Because that's who he is. And that's how he is towards his people. Perhaps you have consciously made godly decisions in your life that have caused you to lose or intentionally not take hold of what the world offers only to realize that the world pities you and looks on you in shame or even withholds its corrupt favor from you for not taking advantage of what she offers. Or perhaps you fill the lowness of your estate in a different way. Perhaps you, you sometime long ago when you graduated from high school read Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go, and you interpreted those places as glorious places rather than regular places. And you set out in life to be someone, to make a difference, to build a legacy, to achieve. But for one reason or another, life has just not worked out like you thought it would. And you're not in those glorious places. And it feels low. Or you may this morning feel the humiliation of your sin. You may be all too aware that you bring nothing to the table at all. And you may wonder, how could God possibly love me? And we have the answer here in this passage. He looks on us in our low estate. That's how. Now, you, you may object to this last point of application saying, okay, well, Mary's lowness, you said, was kind of more, more probably a social situation that she just had a hard lot in life. And I'm fine with that. Or in our judgmental heart, you, you, may, you may look and, and judge yourself and say, but that's not my humiliation here. 
Mine is my sin. Or you may judge others and say, I'm, I'm fine in my lowest state with my struggles with God looking on me, but not them because of what they've done. But it's not any different, is it? It's not any different for God to look on us in our lowest state of the humiliation of our sin than just because our life is in a hard spot. In fact, isn't, isn't what God's word says that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly? Isn't that what it teaches us? Doesn't it explicitly teach us that God showed his love for us while we were still sinners and sent Christ to die for us? Don't we read in God's word that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son? See, you may feel the lowness of your estate in any number of ways this morning. Because the world has withheld its favor because you've pursued Christ. Because your life just didn't quite work out the way you thought it would. Or, or because you see so clearly and feel the grossness of your sin to your very core. Here's the good news. God looks on you in your low estate and he who is mighty has done great things for you because he sent his son to die that you might have life and has poured out his spirit in your heart. You may feel the loneliness of your state in any number of ways. You may even rightly feel that the world and maybe even other Christians, because we can be mighty judgmental at times, are looking away from you in your humiliation. However, your heavenly father is not looking away, but is giving attention to you. He's giving his son to you. That's the gospel. As I was preparing for this sermon, a story came to mind that, that I think illustrates God's looking on our humble estate and lifting his mighty arm to help us better than any story I know to illustrate it with. And some of you have probably seen the video of Derek Redmond at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. He was the British champion. He was in the semifinals. He was running the 400. And about, I don't know, 100 yards in, he pulled his hamstring. He, he was probably going to win the race. And he's hobbling along and trying to make it. Trying to just get to the end. And his dad comes out of the stands, jumps the fence, breaks past like the security guards and takes his son and walks him to the finish line. And there's a point at the beginning there, it's father and son, you're like, oh, this is just triumphant and it's glorious. And, and, and with about 50 yards or so to go, his son just breaks down because he knows it's over. And he knows that his father had looked on him in that low place and ran to him. And all these people are coming around, the, the, the security guards are coming around trying to help and his dad looks at him and says, get away. Because it's the father's job. It's the father's job to walk with us. And it's what he does. It's what he does. He looks on us in our lowest state 
and he doesn't look away. He looks on us with attentiveness and care, and he doesn't look away. He looks on us, and he sees what we need, and he gives it. He gives it in his son, Jesus Christ. That's how we wait. We wait with that father, with that son, and with that spirit who applies it all to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the comfort of your word. Because the waiting is hard. For a thousand reasons, the waiting is hard. But we wait and ask that you would teach us to wait. Because we don't often do it well. But we wait trusting you. We wait believing that you will fulfill your word, every promise of it for your people. We wait knowing that Christ will come again, that we will be ushered into glory, that he has given his spirit and he will strengthen us for this life. And we wait worshiping you because we see so clearly that we're nothing worth magnifying, but you are. That we have nothing in ourselves to rejoice in, but we have a savior and in him we rejoice. And so we ask as we read Mary's song and as we read her story of waiting and see what it looks like, that by your spirit you would teach us to wait for the day of our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.